Tonight I want to talk about three great Buddhist masters of ancient times, known not only for their wisdom, but especially for their deep kindness and compassion. I'll begin with uh, probably not so well-known citation by Karl Marx. (laughs) The happiest person is the one who has rendered happy the greatest number of people. Karl Marx. I'll talk about three of the most influential masters of the Buddhist teachings and practices on great compassion and on bodhicitta. Asanga, Shantideva and Atisha. You might have heard at least uh, Shantideva's name quite a lot because uh, I tend to uh, cite him quite many times. I'll tell a few stories of their lives and Look at some of their teachings. I've started to notice in the West that we hear about the Buddha, perhaps two or three disciples, and then maybe Sayadaw Utechaniya and uh, the Dalai Lama, and then that's about it. There are two and a half thousand years between them and the Buddha and countless amazing yogis, yoginis, siddhas, and masters. People who have not only kept the teaching and the practice lineage alive, but very often have contributed their own genius and their whole life to revive the Dharma in many cases, to keep it fresh, to keep it a relevant experience for new generations and for different cultures. I once read that the Dharma, having gone from India to China, was a much vaster and more complex transition than the Dharma coming from Asia to the West. I don't know the Chinese culture, but that's interesting, isn't it? In there. The fact that it even exists two and a half years, two and a half thousand years later is quite amazing. In many Asian traditions, a vital part of what is handed down through the centuries are the legends and stories of such people. It's a way to engender faith and inspiration in the next generation of practitioners. I'll try today to do the same in a small way. But I personally feel that it's important for us in this culture to understand that these stories are legends. These stories are myths. They're archetypal biographies which are meant to convey Dharma values in a way that's different from passing down knowledge. They're supposed to inspire people on their way. Sometimes they do. It may not inspire everybody here. Also, I want to make the point that hearing of their practice, we could 
easily measure ourselves against them, compare our practice with theirs, feel discouraged and not good enough because their practice is quite amazing. So this is missing the point. Please don't do that. You may or may not be touched by these teachings, by these stories. There's a bit of uh, levitation, which uh, Carol hopefully will then uh, give an example of. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) No? (laughs) There's a bit of clairvoyance of struggle with demons, of flying through the air. That's happening here and there in those stories. So with this, please remember, I'm not trying to believe, make you believe that these things are possible, nor that they are, are impossible. What touches me is the unconditional, enthusiastic effort and surrender these beings have brought to their studies, their practice, and their teachings. I also want to say uh, at this point, there's three men, and I'm very much aware of that. Um, I wrote the book with many of those stories, including uh, those three stories, and I think I almost managed to even it out with male and female figures, but it's very hard to find um, uh, female biographies because they were much less important. It was a patriarchal society up to almost practically today. But um, this time it's men. These deep, wise and precious Buddhist teachings which we have today, they don't arise out of some vacuum. Rather, they are at our disposition today because countless men and women throughout the ages, throughout the centuries, have practiced them, realized them, and passed them on. That's the meaning of lineage, of dharma, or practice lineage, of Übertragungslinie. For this, I personally feel tremendous respect and gratitude, rather than taking it for granted. I guess that's why I wrote the whole book on this. We'll talk about Asanga, Shantideva and Atisha. All three were great scholars, deep wells of inexhaustible knowledge and of deep wisdom. At the same time, it was them who placed the teachings and practices of love, of compassion, of bodhicitta into the very center of spiritual life. In this, they were most decisive influences for the development of the Mahayana tradition within Indian and Tibetan Buddhism. Mahayana originally refers to the traditions which place great emphasis on the development of uh, altruistic, compassionate inner attitude or motivation. One of the early great masters of the Buddhist Mahayana tradition in India is Asanga. 
He was born in the 4th century, perhaps 700 years after the Buddha, <clears throat> as the son of a Brahmin woman. She was very concerned about the degeneration of Buddhism in her time. So that's already happened then. And therefore she inspired her son to become a monk. Even as a very young monk, Asanka was brilliant as a scholar. It is said that he would memorize a hundred thousand verses a year. Memorizing masses of text is not uncommon to this day. My teacher Gesherapne knew many, many texts, even thick, you know, thousand volume texts by heart. Sometimes we had questions and he would sort of come, I would read the passage and then quote it. And Asanka had no problem understanding the deep meaning of the text. After many years of study, he felt he needed to go in to retreat. He went into a cave in the mountains and his aim in this particular retreat was to establish a direct connection with Maitreya, the future Buddha of infinite, unconditional love and kindness. In Pali, his name is Metiya, related to Metta. So up there he practiced for three years, but did not attain to any of the meditation experiences in connection with the Buddha Maitreya, that he had set out to attain. This caused him so much appointment that he left the cave. I mean, that's not three weeks, it was three years. He left the cave up. It's not something we like to hear, this. At least I don't. There's this monk, brilliant and full of renunciation and devotion and zeal. After five years of intensive study and three years of retreat, not the result that he was uh, trying to get a little shocking or disappointing. We ourselves, we give up so much to come and sit for one or two weeks or three weeks. And here's this monk working on it for years and he doesn't get the result. Maybe it's also a relief for some of us. We see the others for whom it's slow and painful. The story of Asanka's retreat really makes a point on just how much patience, perseverance and devotion is needed here. Because here that's just the beginning. Once uh, Asanka had left his cave, he saw a bird's nest on a rock cliff. And the bird had flown in and out so long and consistently that a groove, uh, an erille, had started to appear in the rock cliff carved by the bird's wings that touched the rock when they flew by. So Asanka was so inspired by the patient perseverance of this bird, re-inspired to go back into the cave. 
but within the next three years, again, not the hoped for connection with the Buddha Maitreya, with enlightened loving kindness. Again disheartened, he left the cave again. This time he saw a huge rock that had um, disintegrated over the centuries because of single but continually falling drops of water. So he saw more perseverance was needed. Back he went for another three years. But even after nine years, he hadn't reached his goal. It's actually true. He was uh, finally, he did 12 years of retreat. Having left the cave after nine years, he saw a man who endeavored to make a needle out of a big chunk of iron by rubbing it with the silk cloth. It's an Indian story, okay? <laughs> he thought what this guy can do just to get the worldly object, I can do for the sake of love and kindness. And he gave it the last go, three more years. We have the same problem sometimes. It doesn't work the way we want. And we lose heart. Stop making the right effort. We give up. Like, I need a break. Maybe I should pack. And sometimes one needs to create some space, of course. But eventually we need to face the hopelessness too. If we want to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Asanka did. And nothing happened, no, Maitreya Buddha, after 12 years, he left the mountain for good. On his way down to the village, he came across a dying dog. The dog was already, if you have been in India, you've seen dogs like that. Already half eaten by maggots, by marden, whimpering and whining. Asanka realized that the dog would die soon if he didn't get rid of, of the maggots. He also saw that the maggots would die without the dog's flesh. So he was so moved that he cut a piece of flesh out of his thigh. And since he would kill the maggots with his fingers if he would take them out, he figured he needed to pick them out with his tongue. Okay, it's a Tibetan story. No, now you need to picture it. So he was moved by his compassion to do that. He decided to close his eyes. And um, also feeling the repulsion. That's when Buddha Maitreya appeared to him. That's when Buddha Maitreya appeared in front of him. In all his radiance and power. Asanga prostrated and rejoiced, finally, after all these years. And then he asked the Buddha Maitreya why he hadn't shown himself before. And Maitreya said that he had always been present. All these years he had been present. It's also an interesting point if you translate it. But only when all the hindrances had left and melted away, all the fetters, the kilesa, through Asanga's practice and devotion, could he recognize 
Maitreya or Metiya in his undisguised form. Love or compassion, they are our innate nature. We couldn't possibly know about them or make them up if they were not already part of our life, of our heart-mind. But we need to find them and or rediscover them in our hearts, within our mind. That's our practice here. This is a small addition to that part of Asanga's story. He was so overjoyed, he took Maitreya Buddha on his shoulders and ran through the village shouting, Look, look, Maitreya Buddha. And everybody saw him running through the village with the rotten dog on his back, of course. They said, except one very old woman who had practiced it her whole life, she saw Maitreya. It is said that his connection to Maitreya was so strong or, or so direct or so immediate that some of Asanka's works or, or texts he composed were dictated by Maitreya Buddha. Of his more than ten work, big works or texts he composed, five are said to be the Buddha Maitreya's words. An interesting detail is that... Um, Scholars assume that Asanka's guru was a certain person named Maitreyanatha. Strangely enough, nobody ever find any kind of sign of him. It's interesting. Also, the five um, texts are somewhat different from the other five. Whatever we do with that. He composed texts on the practice of profound wisdom, as well as Abhidharma texts, as Buddhist psychology, you could say. Still very much studied and applied in many Buddhist traditions to this day. For at least 12 years of his life, he was the abbot of Nalanda. It's the biggest, was the biggest Buddhist monastery that ever existed, I think, in the world ever. And he was able to teach and guide thousands of practitioners towards Awakening. So much about Asanga. The most famous of these three masters here, I think, is Shantideva. We actually know very little about him and his life. He's famous because of his great work, the Bodhicharyavatara. It is said that is one of uh, the ten or twelve uh, most important works in, in all of the world's literal history. Engaging in the conduct of a Bodhisattva or entering the practice of enlightenment, if you translate the title. It's a thousand-verse poem describing the practice of the bodhisattvas. Bodhisattvas are beings or people who selflessly dedicate their life to the welfare of all living beings. They decide to practice all the way to Buddhahood because Buddhas can be of greatest help to all. 
whatever this may take, however lo- many lifetimes it may take. Shantideva was living in India probably between 685 and 763. And just as in many of these archetypal biographies, Shantideva was a prince. In a short time before his enthronement as a prince, as a king, he had a vision. It was a vision of Manchushri, the Bodhisattva of Wisdom. It was a powerful vision that moved him to renounce the kingdom and to ordain as a monk. For us here, who are no princes or princesses, and are not monks or nuns, this move of renunciation is still quite relevant. Though we have no kingdoms or queendoms to turn away from, we had to turn away from all sorts of comforts to come here to this retreat. We could have taken a vacation at the sea or whatever, but instead have come here. But even more, we need to let go, we need to turn away from our own inner and outer kingdoms of self that we usually think up day in, day out. Let go of our castles of daydreams, our favorite fantasies and projections. Come back to just what is right here over and over again in this moment like the metta phrases in this retreat. It requires an ongoing act of renunciation. And we're doing it. So that's wonderful. So Shantideva became a monk in the Mahayana tradition of Buddhism. His life too is closely connected to the famous monastery of Nalanda in nowadays Bihar state in northern India. Nalanta was a huge monastic university where thousands of monks were living. It was so famous that great scholars and yogis from all over India, from Central Asia and even China were visiting their um, Chinese texts, you know, very huge texts where People described their journeys to India in those days and uh, their visits in Nalanda and described how it was. We do know for certain that Shantideva was a great scholar. His first work, the Shiksha Samujaya, is made up of quotations from nearly a hundred suttas or sutras or discourses of the Buddha. Nalanda must have had huge libraries and he used them extensively. The ninth chapter of his Bodhicharyavatara, the chapter on wisdom, according to the Madhyamika view, is complex and very profound and became one of the principal philosophical sources of reference in the Mahayana tradition. It's written in the style of debate according to the very sophisticated culture of the 
monastic universities of these days. You have to imagine spiritual leaders and gurus would square up, argue in formal debate for days, and then the loser had to convert to the winner's faith or tenet with all his hundreds of followers. And it doesn't mean much for us, but if you imagine, imagine Carol Wilson would have to get into this big debate, let's say with Billy Graham. <laughs> Ameri- yeah, he was, in, he was in Switzerland, American uh, Christian preacher. And she would lose. <laughs> we would all have to convert to Billy Graham's faith. <laughs> so you better. <laughs> Though we don't know much about Shantideva's life, we can assume that from the spiritual depth of his work, that he was a person of great humility and compassion. An anecdote gives the impression that his monk's colleagues looked upon him as a simple, actually even a stupid monk who didn't have much knowledge and who was spending his time mostly to use the way the Tibetans put it, eating, sleeping and defecating. That's what they say about bad monks. One day he was asked to give a presentation of various quotations from the Buddha's texts in front of the assembled community of monks. They actually wanted to embarrass him. He first refused, but when they promised to build a very high throne for him, he accepted. They expected to have a good laugh when he would embarrass himself by not really having anything to say sitting up there on the throne. When the time came, Shantideva, to the amusement of the audience, asked whether they wanted to hear something already well known or rather something original, new. They opted for something original, of course. To the utter surprise of everyone, he recited the first eight chapters of his thousand-verse work, the Bodhicaryavatara. When he got to the ninth chapter, the one on wisdom I mentioned, it says he began to levitate from his throne up and up and up. He began to levitate so far up that uh, until he disappeared in the sky. And yet his voice could be heard everywhere loud and clear. There's another version that said only those who could join him up there had the special power, those who had the special power of of the divine ear who could hear what was said far away, they uh, got the ninth chapter. One of the greatest, profoundest and most significant spiritual texts of all times had come into being. The part about levitation you don't need to take literally, 
But the part about the profundity of the teaching, yes, please do. Even though he was a great scholar, he set completely new standards and values with respect to the practice of compassion. The present Dalai Lama often quotes the verse which he often said he regards as his highest inspiration. The verse that expresses the central concern of the Bodhisattvas is for as long as space endures and for as long as living beings remain, until then may I too abide to dispel the suffering of all beings. Shantideva praises Bodhicitta, the unshakable result to realize complete Buddhahood for the welfare of all. This unfathomable is the depth of goodness of this jewel of the heart-mind, meaning this attitude, this motivation. This panacea, this allheilmittel for relieving the pain of the world, this source of all its joy, isn't it what we're looking for? Many of the verses in Shantideva's work are expressions of joy and appreciation. The Dalai Lama said, with respect to this ability to rejoice, that's the Dalai Lama, if we can rejoice in the good qualities and actions of others, we automatically partake of the powerful energy that is inherent in these good qualities. So that's an addition to Ursula's uh, talk last night. Shantideva wrote, Gladly do I rejoice in the virtue that relieves the suffering of all those in unfortunate states and that places those with suffering in happiness. With gladness I rejoice in the ocean of virtue from developing great compassion that wishes all beings to be happy. And I rejoice in the deeds that bring them benefit. Shantideva is a very expressive poet who uses the flowery language of 8th century India. He expresses his altruistic motivation of compassion as follows. May I be a guard for those who are protectorless, a guide for those who journey on the road, for those who wish to reach the further shore, may I be a boat, a raft, a bridge. May I be the doctor and also the nurse, may I be the medicine, for the suffering beings in this world until everyone is healed. May I be an inexhaustible treasure for those who are poor and destitute. May I turn into all things they could need and may this be placed close beside them. But Shantideva's great work isn't just aspirations and good intentions. It's a treasure trove of practical advice, of suggestions for contemplations and exercises. 
after praising Bodhicitta and warning us against the destructive forces, the kilesa, in our hearts and minds. He writes about the cultivation of qualities such as vigilance, wise attention and mindfulness. That's each one is a whole chapter. Then he offers extensive teachings on the cultivation of the paramitas, such as patient acceptance, enthusiastic perseverance, and liberating insight and wisdom. On discouragement and worry, which are the opposite of genuine patience, he said, Whatever difficulty befalls me, I shall not disturb my inner joy. If I let myself be dejected or depressed, I cannot accomplish my aims and my virtues will decline. He continues with one of his most famous verses. He said, why be unhappy about something if it can be remedied, if it can be beseitigt? And what is the use of being unhappy about something if it cannot be remedied? We use straightforward words. It's what the Dalai Lama often does. If there's something you can do about the problem, then why worry? Do it. If there's nothing you can do about it, then again, why worry? In order to inspire us for enthusiastic effort and perseverance, he gives a description of our situation in this existence. He says, now that you have met this boat, this human life, cross over the great river of suffering, it's hard to find this boat again. This is no time for sleep, you fool. And he continues, Having cultivated patience, you should develop enthusiasm because awakening depends on effort, on enthusiastic effort. Just as there is no movement without wind, there is no progress without enthusiastic effort. The most famous is the eighth chapter. Here Shantideva presents further approaches and methods for the development of great compassion and bodhicitta. He explains the contemplation or reflection on the equality between self and others. Thinking, reflecting, how to which vast extent we're the same. We both have the same wishes, what we would want to have in life and what we dread and would like to be rid of. And also on exchanging oneself and others. That's maybe the main part in this eighth chapter. Placing oneself in the position of the other person and looking back. He asks, when both myself and others are similar in that we wish to be happy, What is so special about me that I protect myself but not others? And he answers, Whatever joy there is in this world all comes from wishing others to be happy. Whatever suffering there is in this world 
all comes from craving and attachment to my own happiness. And then as a proof, he says, but what need is there to say much more? The childish work for their own benefit. The Buddha's work for the benefit of all beings, of others. Just look at the difference between them. I think many of his verses speak for themselves. Maybe there are some who inspire you to actually study Shantideva more closely. There's also a little book by the Dalai Lama where he um, comments a number of Shantideva's verses. I'll, I'll post. So, that much about Shantideva for now. Atisha. In about the same century that Shantideva was living, Buddhism first spread to Tibet. It was Padmasambhava, known as Guru Rinpoche and others, who brought it to Tibet. It's the origin of the so-called Dzogchen teachings. But after a relatively short period during which the Dharma flourished in Tibet, a tough area of persecution followed under uh, King King Long Dharma. And then only in the 11th century, about 300 years after Shantideva, a second wave of the Buddhist teachings reached the land of snow. The most important leading personality in this process was the great Indian master, Atisha Dipankara Shrichnana. Atisha is actually the last famous and relevant Buddhist master of India that historically we know of. This was the time of the Muslim invasions and with this the fall and the end of uh, Buddhism in India. Monastery, Monastery University of Nalanda was destroyed in 1197, so 800 some years ago. Atisha was born in approximately 980 as the second son of a king and queen of Bengal. It's the province around Calcutta today. Atisha was, Atisha's birth was accompanied by miraculous appearances and by blessings of the enlightened Tara. Even as a child he was very fond of the Dharma. And in his first public speech, still as a kid and prince, he declared, Since I have attained this precious human body and have met with Buddha, Dharma and Sangha, never falling into the bondage of worldly things, may I be able to join the community of monks and may I be filled with compassion for all sentient beings. It wasn't easy for him to get permission from the king and the queen to renounce the throne renounce the world. Again, you this turning away from what doesn't bring ultimate happiness. When he finally got permission, he moved into the woods where he practiced under certain yogi. It says from age 12 to age 18, he practiced the Dharma by listening, reflecting and meditating. 
And I'll give you a very condensed account of everything he did. Otherwise, it would actually fill the whole book. He then continued to study under a number of different masters and became an accomplished scholar and debater. Then from age 21 to 29, he studied and practiced countless tantric teachings. Then he took full ordination as a bhikkhu, a monk. And his ordination name was Dipankara. After another 12 years of intensive study and meditation practice, he was told through visions and prophecies that in order to reach full enlightenment, he needed yet another kind of practice, namely the practice of bodhicitta, the altruistic resolve to become a Buddha for the benefit of all beings. So Atisha began to search for the ideal teacher. He heard of Guru Suvanadvipa Dharmakirti on Sumatra, that's today's Indonesia, who was the holder of these teachings on great compassion. Atisha didn't shrink from undertaking the very long and dangerous journey on sea to Sumatra. It took 13 months to cross the ocean, a very long time under precarious circumstances. Atisha's sea journey was accompanied by dangerous storms, by sea monsters, by perilous ocean currents and alluring sights like Odysseus. He was facing great challenges as he sailed on the great ocean. The events of the feats and of, of these heroes and heroines in these legends of old often also describe the inner journey. When we're on the path, when we practice deeply, we also have to face all kinds of challenges and difficulties. The storms of anger, irritation and restlessness, the lure and desire of longings, the undercurrents of complacency and laziness, the sidetracks of doubt, or of clever thoughts, all traumatic memories that surface, they courage to do what we do here. And we're doing it. So that's quite amazing. Once Atisha got to Sumatra, he practiced the teachings of Bodhicitta and of Lochong, the methods of mind-heart transformation, for 12 years. He was rather thorough in his approach, one could say, isn't it? Eventually, back in India, he became one of the principal masters of the other huge monastic university, which was that of Vikramashila. Now, meanwhile, in Tibet, great efforts were underway to recover from the persecution of Buddhism by this bad king, Sadly, there were very few left who knew the true teaching. Quite a few were practicing the tantras, but didn't keep the principal, most important rules of conduct of the Vinaya anymore. Others practiced the rule of conduct, but didn't know the liberating teachings on meditation. In short, Tibet was in dire need of someone who was extraordinarily able and learned and realized someone just like Atisha. 
An expedition was sent to India to find texts and to find a qualified master. Sometimes these expeditions took years and would cost people's lives. Were killed in ice storms and that's not uh, symbolic, it's actually the fact. On the very high Himalayan passes up to 5,000 meters, dangerous rivers, they had to cross unknown fevers and diseases. That was one of the worst things for the people on the high plateau when they would go down in the heat. Bandits and robbers. It was dangerous. Long, hard journeys. But they did find out that Atisha would be the ideal person. But Atisha was very much needed and in demand in India too. It wasn't that just waiting to go to Tibet, the land of the barbarians as they were thought of in, in India. Perhaps were. Then the king Lalama Yeshe'u, I'll, I'll call him Yeshe'u, the king from West Tibet, he decided to travel to Turkestan, next country, to find gold and bring it to India in the hope to move Atisha and his entourage mostly to come to Tibet. But the local rulers in Turkestan, they didn't like the idea of Tibet becoming Buddhist. So that ruler took the king Yeshe a prisoner. Now Ye- Yeshe Er's nephew, whose name was Chongshu Er, and light of enlightenment wanted to get his uncle out of imprisonment otherwise he knew the king would certainly fall ill and die I mean it wasn't quite prisons like we have these days or dungeons but the condition for his release the ransom was the weight of gold equal to the weight of the king's body that would be the cost to get him out so the nephew took a very long time to find that much gold, probably years, get it together and offered it for his uncle, for the king's release. But just before he actually gave it, he had an opportunity for a secret conversation with his uncle, somehow the imprisoned king. The king advised or ordered him instead of using the gold to buy his freedom and his life, to keep the gold and travel to India in order to move Atisha's people and Atisha to come to Tibet so as to re-establish the Dharma there. So with a heavy heart, the nephew did that as he was told. King Yeshir died in prison with the knowledge that he had achieved for his people what's most precious in life, the reestablishment of the Dharma in his country. To this day, Lalama Yeshua is one of the most venerated and praised figures in Tibetan history, someone who gave his life for the Dharma. Meanwhile, Atisha was already way over 50, when he was requested to come to Tibet, he inquired from two very realized and clairvoyant yoginis about the possible value of a journey to Tibet. They predicted 
that it would be of greatest value for the people of Tibet, but that he himself would only become 73 years old instead of 92. Atisha decided to go, since it seemed clear that this would be decisive for the re-establishment of the Dharma in Tibet. So he went and spent 13 years in central Tibet. Uh, that was the same period as that of Marpa and Milarepa, for those who know the story. He died there in 1053 at age 72, as predicted. He had founded many monasteries, given countless teachings, and had many realized students. He wrote and taught the Bodhipata Pradipa, a text called A Lamp of the Path on the Path to Enlightenment, at the request of Changshu E, the nephew who went to India. With this he introduced the tradition of Lamrim, now a classical Tibetan way of presenting the practice in gradually progressing teachings. The teachings and the practice of the Dharma in Tibet got revived, developed and prospered for over 900 years up until the Chinese invasion and occupation about 60 years ago. And many more remote areas of Tibet is still going on. To this day, the tradition is also still alive through the Tibetan refugees in India, Nepal and elsewhere and their students all the way to us here today. And even though right now we're practicing in the Theravada tradition, particularly in this center, since we have uh, retreats in different traditions, we still benefit greatly from all this hundred or thousand years later. And we owe this to an entire chain of lineage of people with boundless devotion to the practice of Dharma. People like Shantideva, like Yeshe Ö, Atisha, and all their successors until today. And that's a bit the idea when I put up these pictures. Atisha's main disciple was Dromdampa. He was followed by the lineage of the so-called Kadampa Geshes. They're famous for their so-called Lochong trainings or methods for thought and heart transformation. They put the teachings Atisha brought from Sumatra into the forms that are very well known today. These trainings of transforming our habitual way of looking at and thinking about things about life, they're very radical. It means, for example, that we would have to be willing or even eager, having taken the difficult, so-called difficult person yesterday, that's interesting, be eager to train ourselves in seeing our greatest adversary or enemy or most difficult person as our most beloved teacher and guru. 
It's not everyone's preference. Forty-five years ago, when I asked my teacher, Keshirapten, for teachings on this mind training, he refused to give it for quite some time. He was very hesitant, and we didn't know why. Found out he felt that suggestions in those teachings are much too radical for most people to be practiced seriously, even to be taken seriously. And I'm afraid... He was right to some extent in my own case. It's a practice that presupposes strong spiritual foundations. One has to be well grounded in trust through self-respect and also in self-appreciation, which is often a difficult point in the West. Then it can be really powerful. It's not what we do here. Don't worry. I'll read you parts of the famous eight verses, slightly modified and toned down so we can hear it. They're actually a bit more radical than this. Being determined to accomplish the highest welfare of all beings, I shall always hold them dear. When in company of others, I shall view myself as the least important and in the depth of my heart hold the others as most esteemed. Examining my mind in all actions as soon as afflictions or klesha arise endangering myself and others I shall immediately avoid them. When met by a person with evil nature controlled by violence and misbehavior, I shall hold this one most dear, as though discovering a precious treasure. When others treat me badly with insult and abuse, I shall accept that treatment and offer victory to them. When someone whom I have helped and in whom I have placed great hope inflicts bad harm on me, I shall see that one as my supreme teacher. In short, I will offer benefit and happiness to everyone and secretly take upon myself all the harm and suffering of all beings who are like my mother. Quite some years ago, the Tibetan monk Pelton Gyatso escaped from Tibet after he had been imprisoned under horrible conditions for 33 years by the Chinese. He he said he had been tortured every day for years and years, every day. He said he had been afraid of one thing only, that he might lose his compassion for his torturers. But he didn't. He never did. That's when he met the Dalai Lama, he told that to the Dalai Lama. So people like him are, of course, very unusual, very amazing people. So let's rejoice in these extraordinary human possibilities. Let's be inspired by the amazing potential of our human minds.
Thank you for your interest and attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.